Amen. Thank you very much, Mary. Uh, I didn't see what it was, but I saw a Jewish missionary put some offering down here, so you better get it. Because otherwise, he may get it, take it back when he leaves if you don't grab that plate. So, <laughs> And we want to, if you didn't get a chance to meet his wife, Beth, who just uh, came in right as we were having the break between services. And so we're glad you made it over here during that time, Beth. And Janet sends her love and a hug to you. She's busy doing her grandmotherly thing this morning, so uh, she's not here. There was something else now I was sitting there thinking about that I wanted to say, but I knew if I'd made a remark about a Jewish missionary, I'd forget it. So I can't remember what it was. <laughs> okay, well. It's my fault. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Steve and Mandy drove up. This couple right there. Now, he, his wife's down out in the hall. They took their little girl back to the nursery, I'm sure. They drove all the way up from Boaz, Alabama. Oh, they Boaz. make it up about once every three or four or five weeks, something like that. We're glad to have you here, Steve. And I need to get your email because I've still got that old farmer's tell one and I keep forgetting that. So, And anybody else that I don't have an email address for, I'd sure like to get that updated because I've been trying to send out some uh, emails here and there and keep you updated on what's going on. Okay, enough of that. Fred Bennett, you missed it during Sunday school hour if you weren't here. We had a great little lesson on the Feast of Israel, and that was really good. And you, know, you missed out on not only some good teaching, but uh, the enthusiasm of Fred, which you'll, you'll catch on to here in a minute. Uh, somebody said, well, I don't think I've ever met him before. Don't worry. Once you've met him, you won't have to worry about it. You'll remember Fred from that point on. No, no trouble. Fred and I met way back uh, in about, he said about 1982 when he first came to Chattanooga. I couldn't remember when it was, but I knew it had been a long time. And he's been a good friend ever since. And I've always appreciated him and his testimony and, and also that of his ministry and how his wife has kept him towed straight in line all these years. Well, she's tried anyway. Uh, Fred's a hunter. He likes to hunt, and he's going out when? Out tomorrow, tomorrow morning. morning. He's going hunting tomorrow morning, Lord willing, and I'll have some venison uh, later in the week. So you pray for a good hunt. Man of faith. Yeah, <laughs> I like that stuff. He's brought some over before, and I'm telling you, it was outstanding. Well, enough of that. I'm going to ask him to come. He's been a missionary to Jews since 1982 when he came to Chattanooga, and um he knows a lot about that ministry and ministering to them and how to reach them, and I'm glad he's here uh, to share with us his knowledge and experience in these things. Brother Fred. Yeah. Thank you, Alan. Unfortunately, you and I have more in common than preaching and missionary work, uh, cancer and heart and a few other things. So um, we've come to see each other in the hospital a few times, and but that's the way life is, and, and uh, like... Job said to his wife, you know, should we expect only good from the Lord and not anything bad? And the answer is no. Part of our fellowship and the sufferings of Christ is to experience some of the things that he did. But the interesting thing is that when we're doing that, he is going through those things with us again, feeling all the pain. So you can never catch up because he's always ahead of us as far as really being in touch with our emotions and our feelings. Daniel chapter 9 this morning. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to talk about the Messiah, how he came on time. Now, I sometimes am a little bit late, and sometimes I get in a hurry. I get caught by the, uh, 
the Chattanooga Traffic Division that has those vans that photograph your license plate. And uh, when I got back from Ukraine, I had a picture of the back end of my truck, and it said I owed them $50. And um, I was in a hurry. And uh, it's because I wanted to be on time, but I should have left earlier. And uh, I didn't. So a little reminder to me. I want to ask everyone to stand before we do um, just look in the scripture this morning. And I want to uh, just briefly tell you about something and then sing the Israeli national anthem. When the Jewish people um, set about to find a flag for their country, years before they had a country, uh, they came up with this design of the flag. And I want to submit to you that the Israeli flag is the only flag in the world that has God all over it. Uh, they designed their flag, the colors of their flag, after the holiest garment that a Jewish man, a Sadiq, will ever have, and that is his talus, his garment of prayer. It's blue and white. The white reminds him of the inside of the tabernacle, that God is a holy God. The blue was the color of the outside of the seven tents of the tabernacle. Leviticus and Deuteronomy both described this garment, and the Jewish man was was commanded to wear it, and he was especially commanded to wear it when the morning and evening sounding of the shofar uh, signaled the morning and the evening sacrifice. The Jewish man would step out of his tent in the wilderness, and all of the 600,000 men would face the front of the tabernacle where the high priest was going in. And when the high priest went into the tabernacle, this little tabernacle, which is literally what the word talus means, a small tent, was what the Jewish man would go into and stay under the tabernacle as long as the high priest was under the tabernacle. And then when the high priest came out of the tabernacle, the Jewish man would come out of the tabernacle. So today it's a very precious garment for the Jewish people. They designed it, the flag, uh, to be a picture really to resemble the talus. And then they put a symbol of promise right in the middle, that which has become to be known as the, the Star of David. And it was especially prominent during Solomon's reign, but it did come about, as far as we know historically, during the reign of King David. It's a symbol of the tribe of Judah. So right in the middle of the Jewish flag, which reminds them that God is a holy and pure God, the blue reminds them that he is the God of the heavens, the God is above all the other gods. Right in the middle of this flag that is all about God is one of God's promises symbolized with the Star of David, the Mogan David, the sign of the tribe of Judah. So it's a really special flag, the only one in the world that has God all over it. And even though the Jewish people don't understand that, 70% of them are professing atheists or agnostics. 70%, that's their number. Even so, they are still God's people in their unbelief. Three times the Apostle Paul, with the most emphatic Greek word that could be used, answers the question, has God forsaken his people, with what is actually a triple negative. No, no, no. He has not forsaken his people. I want to sing for you. And while I'm doing this, I'd like you to think about the Jewish people in their blindness and think about those that died during the Holocaust, and then we'll have a moment of prayer. I'll ask um, Pastor Allen if he'll have a word of prayer for the Jewish people and for the nation of Israel. Now, when we sing our national anthem, when it's finished, people clap, people cheer. 
a guy dressed in black and white says, play ball. Or somebody with a microphone says, gentlemen, start your engines. When the Jewish people have their national anthem sung, people weep. Because the, the English translation of this is all about the promise that one day they would have their own nation again, their own land, their own people back together. They are not all yet regathered to the land. They do not yet have all of their land, despite what anybody says. Uh, their current leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, is a, is a biblical uh, Zionist. He believes in the biblical boundaries of the nation of Israel, the same that we do. And he would like to see his country have those biblical boundaries. And I think we should pray for him that God will protect him and use him to maybe bring some of that about. Old law of that's the first time I've ever sung it without the words in front of me and that's not easy when it's all Hebrew <laughs> and I only missed one word I'll just let you know Alan would you pray for the Jewish people please Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 9. Interesting thing about prophecy. Um, when I was a kid, I remember the, the pastor coming and, uh, and preaching with a big chart, you know, and drawing all the pictures and everything, and I never could follow it. it. The pictures I could follow, but all the lines and everything, I never could figure out, you know, what the big toe meant and, you know, and the, uh, the idol in, in uh, Daniel. But some things I can understand. And this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, which also ties into Matthew 21, is a reminder to me of God keeping his word. To me, that's what prophecy is all about. Uh, God didn't give uh, prophecies in the scripture so that somebody could corner the market on interpreting them and be the only one who knew what it meant. I believe that 
the prophecies were given so that people as simple as you and me could see and understand and, and know that God keeps his word and that God is on time. He's never late. Now, again, the Jewish calendar is different from our calendar and God's calendar is different from ours, too. He says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. I know certain ways that I want him to meet some of the needs that I have. I know certain ways that I would like to see him uh, work in somebody's life that I'm praying for. But my ways are not always his. But he always is on time. His timing is so perfect. I, I don't understand it, but it is very, very perfect. And here's one illustration of the exactness of the timing of God. Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Prophecy is evidence of his sovereignty, his omnipotence, and his omniscience. And I'll tell you what, if I didn't believe strongly in the sovereignty of God, I'd go nuts today. I mean, God is in control of everything. I've almost quit watching TV because the only thing many times that TV does is cause me to forget the sovereignty of God or cause me to, to move away from it and not remember that he is the one who is in control at all times. Um, God's perfect timing. There's a prediction made in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 26. The prediction that's made had to do with three things. First of all, the timing. <laughs> Excuse me. In verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel... And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation or sacrifice. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Three times here, Gabriel says, you're going to understand this. I'm going to show you. You will know and understand what is happening. And then he says it so simply, seventy sevens are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city. To finish the transgression. Now, there's six things listed here. I put a line after the third thing. Because it seems to me that these six things describe six different aspects of Christ's ministry. The first three during his first coming. And the second three during his second coming. (coughs) Excuse me. He says the 77s are used... To, number one, finish the transgression. Number two, make an end of sins. And number three, make a reconciliation for iniquity. I believe those fit the first coming of Christ. Number four, five and six, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That hasn't happened yet. To seal up the vision and the prophecy. That hasn't happened yet. And to anoint the most holy. That hasn't happened yet. Know, therefore, and understand... That from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. Only time that phrase is ever used in the scripture. Messiah is used in three times, only three times in the scripture. But Messiah, the Prince is the only time it's ever mentioned. Shall be seven weeks. Those first 49 years were for the rebuilding of the temple. Then... 
three score and two weeks, 62 weeks. You can either date it from the beginning of the commandment. And I I think the simple reason that God gives you two starting points is because there were three commands given. And only one of the commands was the exact day that the clock started ticking for this prophecy to be fulfilled exactly on Sunday, the day that Jesus came into the city, Matthew 21. But just in case there was a misunderstanding, he also dates it from the the year that the temple was finished in its rebuilding. After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. And the word cut off means killed as a sacrifice, but not for himself. He said there's a starting point, and once the clock starts, it will stop ticking on the exact day that the Messiah comes. The timing would be perfect. There was only one man that came on the day of the triumphal entry and presented himself as the Messiah, the Prince. There was only one man that was hailed as Messiah, the Prince, on that particular day. The timing was perfect. What was the transport he was going to take? It's interesting. In Matthew 21, I love the fact that Jesus says, go and, and, and go to a certain place and you'll find a donkey. And if someone asks you, Jesus knew they were going to ask him, if the man who owns a donkey asks you, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord has need of him. I've written in every Bible that I've ever owned, every time I've read that passage, a believer. Because when they said the Lord needs a donkey, the man never questioned it. He knew who was requesting the donkey. He was just double checking to make sure the right guys were taking the donkey because Jesus already made the arrangements for it. But why did he arrange such an unusual thing? This wasn't like riding a Volkswagen in instead of a Jaguar. Okay, This was a fulfillment of prophecy. Look back with me to Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. One of the coolest things about the Old Testament is the mysterious pictures. And how even when Jesus fulfilled those pictures, sadly, some of the Jewish people still didn't understand. But it's almost like God took some of the most off-the-wall things and said, okay, the prophet's going to write down that the Messiah is going to come on a donkey. I mean, how strange is that to our Western thinking? And then, was Jesus the only man who rode a donkey? No. Were there other people riding donkeys that day in Jerusalem? Matthew 21? Sure. But he was the only one who was the Messiah riding a donkey And the crowds recognized who he was. Isaiah 49, verses 10 and 11. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. The Messiah coming to do his work, which has something to do with blood, Moses writes. And the Jewish people didn't understand that. But before the blood was shed, he rode a donkey into the city. 
So his transport was given. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Another interesting <coughs> prophecy about the Messiah. Numbers 24, 17. From Balaam, nonetheless, but a true prophecy of the Messiah. 24, 17 of Numbers. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh or near. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Those are parallel words to what we just read in in Genesis 49. And he shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth, which is exactly what Moses said in in, uh, Genesis 49. Verse 19, out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. So the time was predicted. The way that he came into the city, his transport was predicted. And finally, his testing. Turn back to Exodus chapter 12 real quickly. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 verses 2 to 6. The first month of the year, Nisan, verse 2, Exodus 12, 2. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house, on the tenth day of the month of Nisan. Do you know what day Jesus came into the city? The 10th day of the month of Nisan. Then, if the household's too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same. Holy Week, the triumphal entry, began on Sunday, on the 10th day of Nisan. Four days, the lamb was to be examined. Every household had a lamb in their household in Jerusalem, watched the lamb for four days. After the four days, Jesus was tried and crucified. So... There was perfect timing, perfect transport, and there was perfect testing. And he was found to be without sin. But let's look at Matthew 21 at the fulfillment of all these things. Matthew 21, what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. (laughs) Don't throw out or diminish the Tanakh. I, I hardly ever call it Old Testament anymore except for people who won't understand. The word Tanakh is a Hebrew acrostic for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvi'im. It means the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Jewish people refer to the Old Testament as the Tanakh. If we refer to it as the Old Testament to a Jewish person, it's very offensive to them. It's like saying, hey, I love your used car. They say, wait a minute, what do you mean Old Testament? It's still good. It's still God's word, and it is. And nothing that we read in the New Testament is nearly as awesome and beautiful unless we know the Old Testament background of it. 
And without the two, we cannot see how God ties all of his plan together all the way down through the ages. And he does. Without Daniel 9, we don't know that Matthew 21 is the exact day. 483 Jewish years later to the day. Take 12 times 30 is 360. Throw in the number of second months of Adar all the way from the day in 445 B.C. that the command was given on what would be equivalent to March 14th on our calendar up to the exact day that Jesus came into the city. You wouldn't know the beauty of that picture if you didn't know when the clock started ticking. But here it is in Matthew 21. And when they drew nigh to Jerusalem, were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples. He told them to go in and find the donkey, bring the donkey out for him to ride into the city on. He could have walked in. He knew what he was doing. He knew the identification with what the prophets said was very important. And he knew that some people who knew what the prophets said would see him and it would verify to them that he was who he said he was. Now, we all doubt don't get all over the Jewish people for all the time requiring a sign. We do that. How many times have you said, Lord, show me? Well, sometimes we're not only asking him to show us the way, but we're saying, well, give us a couple little hints along the way. And that's what some of the Jewish people did. Now, don't ask him unless you want to see the sign, okay? Don't ask him the same way the Pharisees did. But some of these signs, these Jewish people understood from the prophets, and when they saw it, there it was. John the Baptist. I mean, Jesus said there's not risen a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But when he was sitting in jail, remember what question he sent through a messenger to Jesus? Are you the Messiah, or should we look for another one? Jesus didn't say, ah, tell him to pull it together. Tell him to get strong. Tell him to quit doubting. He didn't. He said, just go back and tell him everything you said I was going to do, I've been doing. And he did. The fulfillment is here, and it is so beautiful. It includes the Messiah's road, verses 1 to 8. He rides down a specific road. Guess what? If you go back to Ezekiel, chapters 10, 11, and 43, you see that this is God's road. You see, when the temple was built just inside the eastern gate, when the Shekinah comes down into the temple, he doesn't come down onto the Holy Mount. He comes down on the Mount of Olives, goes over the eastern gate, and settles down into the temple area in the Holy of Holies. When he leaves in Ezekiel, he leaves the same way. Ezekiel sees the Holy Spirit in a vision rising up, going over the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives, and then going up to heaven. That's the way Jesus comes in. He comes down to the Mount of Olives. He waits till the donkey comes. And then he comes in that little road that wound down into the Kidron Valley and came back and up through the eastern gate. It's the Messiah's road. You can't go that way now because there's a Muslim cemetery. And the Muslims think that the Messiah would never come through their cemetery. And they're right. He won't. He'll wipe the cemetery out. He'll open up a new way to come in that way. And he'll come into the temple someday. And that's what he was getting ready to do. But guess what? Some of the people who really believed in him 
did something very special. They sang a song for him. Messiah had a road to come in, but he also had a song. Look at verses 9 to 11. A very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strewed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hashanah, Hashanah. Hebrew, it means, I'm praying, I'm calling on you to rescue me. We're praying for safety, for rescue from you. The word Messiah means rescue or salvager. So they begin to shout this word out. Um, Pastor, could you come up here for just a second, please? The Gospels say they spread their garments in the way. Okay, Jewish cultural experts say that does not mean they put their garments down in the road. Okay, the old the old chivalry thing in, in back in England was to, you know, if there was a mud hole and you had your girlfriend with you, you'd spread your, you know, over. That's not what it's talking about. When they see what these guys were singing, and they're singing it loudly, and when they see the wording, especially of Matthew, who was Jewish, they say this is what was happening. And I tell you what, I believe it. This is true. Because look at the picture. This is a garment of the law. It's got 613 knots on the fringes, which remind us of the 613 laws I told you about during Sunday school. The corners are tied in such a way that they spell in Hebrew letters the name of God, Yahweh, yod heh vav which the Jewish people are afraid to speak, the holiest name of God. They kiss those corners and touch them on the Torah in the synagogue. This is all about, remember what this means, a little tent, a small tent, a small tabernacle. What is the picture that they're trying to give and how clear is the picture when someone takes his talus and says to his friend, hold this talus over the road. Hold it by the corners, please, sir. And stands on each side of the road for Jesus to ride his donkey through. What's the picture? And then the people on each side of the road who are holding this tabernacle Start singing. Baruch haba Adonai. Hallelujah. Baruch haba Adonai. Hallelujah. Baruch haba Adonai. Baruch haba. Bashem Adonai, Alleluia. You know where that's taken from? Psalm, thank you. Psalm 118.26. Do you know why David wrote that? That was a song written for the coming of the Messiah, the anointing of the Messiah. Psalms 113 to 118 are read during the Passover. They are read the first two days of Passover at least. So the Jewish people had sung that very song. But now there's a group of people on this road. They're lining both sides of the road. They're holding a talus up, a picture of the tabernacle. Where is God at that time? The Shekinah is not in the temple. He's not behind the veil. They believe what the prophet said, that he is in heaven right then. What's the picture? 
Some of them are saying he's back. He is back. The Messiah is back. Because look what they say. Hosanna to the son of David. Ben David. Look through the Gospels. I'm just reading in Luke this morning. Two or three different times the people say, Have mercy. Literally, be the mercy seat offering for me, son of David. Not all the people who came to him for healing called him the son of David. But the ones who did were saying he was the Messiah. Just like these people were saying it. Now, if, if you hear the song, who's going to come in the door? Dum, 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 dum. That's the president's song, right? Last Sunday, I, I, I didn't tell you this, Sunday. Last Sunday, Tom uh, played a trick on me. I was in a church down in Louisiana. So I mentioned this on Sunday morning. So on Sunday night, he said, Fred, we need you to go back to the back of the auditorium and come in. I said, okay. So, because I said that morning, when they play Hail to the Chief, I don't come in. Well, they started playing Hail to the Chief, and they asked me to come in on Sunday night. It's not my song. This is not every Jewish man's song. They sang this song. Just the way Hail to the Chief is only played for the coming of the President of the United States. These people were singing this song. They were singing it so loudly. Now, today, if they sang it up on the Mount of Olives, you couldn't hear it because of all the cars that are running up and down the Kidron Valley. Back then, that was about all you heard. Maybe a cow now and then. It could be heard very easily inside the city gates. And it was... Notice what the scripture says here. When he was come, verse 10, into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Now, that's really not a strong enough word. Matthew 2, Matthew records, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him when Herod heard that the Messiah had been born. The word there means to be deeply distressed, bittered, angered. Wait a minute. On one side of the wall, on the outside, these people are singing as loud as they can the Messiah's song. And they're proclaiming by what they say, he's the son of David. They're saying, deliver us, deliver us, son of David, Messiah. They're using their garments to picture God coming back into his dwelling place, the tabernacle. Jesus goes through the gate and on the other side, Nobody's happy. The southern expression, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. The Jewish people were not happy on that side of the wall. There was no singing on that side of the wall until about two verses later, a few seconds later, when some of those kids squeeze through the gate and then they start singing it on the other side. Notice. When the chief priests, verse 15, and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out. It doesn't mean screaming. It means singing out loudly in the temple. The same thing. Hashanah to the son of David. They were sore displeased. Same word as moved or troubled back in verse 10. Those people were not happy about who he was. They didn't believe who he was. He was messing up their plans. The believers are going, can you believe it? The Messiah is back. God has come and he is dwelling among us. Then Jesus did something very unusual. There was a sign. You come through the eastern gate. There were a couple of signs. 
The sign said that people were, that were unclean were not allowed past this last gate, this last little fence enclosure. Okay, the first group of unclean people that were not allowed in there was you and me, Gentiles. Okay, the court of the Gentiles was outside of this inner court where only Jewish people could go. <laughs> but then there was another group of people that weren't allowed inside there, and that was unclean people. Not Gentile unclean, but unclean, blind, lame, diseased, and so forth, unless they've been cured of their disease. Notice what Matthew says, verse 14. Jesus is already inside the gate. He's already into that area. The sign is there. And Matthew says, and the blind and lame came to him and he healed them. They came to him in the temple. Now, notice what he did two verses before. He cleaned out the really unclean people. Those who were merchandising in the temple. By the way, it was not against the law for them to sell sacrifices. It was against for them the law for them to sell blind and lame sacrifices, which the prophets in the Old Testament accused them of doing. How ironic. Jesus throws out the guys that are selling blind and lame, unclean sacrifices. Then a group of people follows him and he turns around. They were blind and lame. He gives them perfect sight. He heals their limbs. What are they allowed to do now? They're allowed to come into the temple with him. That's what he did for us. That's what he does for us. I've got two questions for you as we close. Is Jesus messing up your plans? Either your plans for the rest of your life, your plans for your finances, your plans for your family, your kids, grandkids, whatever. Uh, do you know what his plan is for your kids, grandkids, your finances, and the rest of your life? Are you interested in that? Are, are you willing to do things in your life that outwardly, clearly proclaim the Messiah to be who he is, God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and your own personal Messiah? Those people took a risk. They took a risk when they unfolded the talus, this holy garment that they would be buried in someday. They took a risk because they were stating that this man was the Messiah and they were believing in him. They're risking their lives that day. Are you willing to do that? And secondly, are you willing for this place in your body, which is the temple of the Lord, to be what Jesus intended them to be. Very strongly, verse 12, he beat the fire out of some people. He went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, he cried out unto them, My house! shall be called the house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7. Beautiful. Jesus prophesied to say that, says it. 
And he says, in my house, Isaiah 56, 7, there will be prayer, there will be worship, there will be cleansing. That's what I'm all about. This is my house. Now, there's some people that foolishly believe that Jesus didn't know who he was, that he never stated he was deity. (laughs) Hey, he said, this is my house. Do you realize that that's what he says to you? You are my house. You have no right to be doing with my possessions, with my body, which is yours, Unclean things at any time, anywhere. Unclean desires. uh, Wishes and prayers outside of my will. My house shall be called the house of prayer. He doesn't quote it here, but Isaiah 56, 7 says, For all Gentiles, for all nations. I'm glad that last part was in there. Let's pray, please. The Messiah came on time. God's timing is perfect. It was predicted when he would come, how he would come, that he would be tested, that he'd be found innocent. They couldn't even get the paid liars to agree. So they had to condemn him without just cause. There actually was just cause for Jesus to die. It's you and me, our sins. We killed him. We caused his death. Therefore, if we are his people, his believers, if we are his temple, we have absolutely no right to call the shots in our own life. He won't be messing up our plans. His plans are perfect. His timing is perfect. Does your life, your business the way you are around your neighbors, the way you are down at the corner gas station, the way you are around your grandchildren, your children, does your life signify who Jesus is and who he is to you? Is it clear? And if it is, some people are going to get mad about it. They're not going to like it. Which side of the wall are you on? And are you willing to lift up your life like they lifted up their talus and proudly proclaimed that Jesus is who he is and that he belongs to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have Fred here to share such a message with us. We thank you for the import and the depth of what it means to be long to Christ. And considering the day and age in which we live and the times that are drawing near for the return of our Savior and the Messiah, I pray, Father, that we would, at this very moment, consider once again what it means to be a Christian. And I pray that you give us just cause, as we all have, to search our own hearts just now and consider the magnitude and the depth of our own commitment to you. We ask these things and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.